for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Good work. Well, well done. You've chosen correctly. (laughs) The other talks are going to be brilliant, just to add, but I feel like it's appropriate that we should have a sporting theme this morning after England's fabulous victory yesterday. I'm actually starting to believe that football might be coming home, which is, which is a dangerous place to be for an England fan, let's just say. When I looked at the list of potential church history makers that we could choose from to, to talk on for this morning, Eric's, Eric Little really jumped out at me. I remember seeing the film Chariots of Fire as a boy. I don't know how many others have seen that film. Not many. Oh, yeah, there are a few. Oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. There are quite a few. Um, and I was really captivated by that film. I was probably, I think it came out in 1981. I was probably about 10. I saw it a couple of years after it came out. But I loved sport. I loved running fast. Uh, so this film really ticked all the boxes for me. Um, I think it also perhaps started off my love of all films where the underdog sports star or sports team wins the day in the end. I love films like that. Rocky, uh, Coach Carter, Cool Runnings, Karate Kid, all of those films I love to this day. So I think it was Chariots of Fire that kicked all of that off. But also being a Christian, raising a Christian home, it really spoke to me because Eric Little was very much a Christian. Prior to preparing the talk for this morning, I didn't know loads about him other than what I'd seen in the film. I knew he was a missionary, he went on to become a missionary after his Olympic victory. But a little more than that, but as I've read biographies and just looked into his life, I've just found that I really like this man. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, that's one of the great things about being able to look into the lives of of church history makers, I guess. We get to draw alongside those that we could never have met. It's fantastic. But to be honest, it's rare that I've come across someone in history about whom I thought, I'd really like to have known this man. I'd really like to have been in the same church as him, maybe even had him as a friend. I think that would have just been amazing. But that seems to have been the story across the board. People seem to really warm to Eric. And I think part of that was just the fact that he was a very ordinary man. He loved God and he loved people and he sought to live his life out on that basis. He looked to live a life of obedience to God and to love and serve others. He also looked to have some, have some fun along the way. But this ordinariness juxtaposed against his clear fame in early life, is what made for an extraordinary life. Eric Little was famous, really, for the race he didn't run. So he was uh, Britain's best hope for the 100 metres in the 1924 Paris Olympics. But some months before the Games, he found out that those heats were going to be held on a Sunday. Uh, Eric had very deeply held convictions that... uh, he couldn't run on the Lord's Day. As far as he was concerned, that was a day of rest and, wor- and worship, not a day of recreation except or work, except where necessity or mercy were in play. The film Chariots of Fire makes quite a lot of that. Um, it suggests that uh, he found out just before the Olympics 
um, and there was some deliberation on his part about whether, you know, whether he should run or not. But in truth, he found out months before, and it was never a matter for debate. He just wasn't going to run. There was a huge press backlash to this in Scotland. Some called him unpatriotic. Some called him a traitor. But despite some of the hurt caused by this coverage, Eric was completely unmoved. The British Olympic Committee approached the organisers of the Games in, a, in an attempt to move the heat, but there was, they weren't having any of it. So in the end, Eric was put forward for the 200 and the 400 metres, events that he was considered strong, but not a contender. Englishman Harold Abrahams was put forward for the 100 metres, as is well marked out in the film. He's not as fast as Eric, but, uh, but considered to be the next best contender. Now, Eric was uh, well-known already at this point. He actually played rugby for Scotland seven times. I think there might be a slide that shows a, a picture of that. Yeah, so that's, that's him in the... Uh, I think that's the lower, in the lower right. He, he was uh, known not only for his speed, he played, played on the wing, but he's also known for his physicality. He's a very physical player. It was said of him that if you were tackled by Eric Little, you remained tackled. <laughs> I seem to remember, I, I, had a, I had a friend at school who was affectionately called Bud, not Jum Bud, but uh, he, he was a six-foot guy joined in year seven, and he had a similar effect on his opponents in rugby. You remain tackled once you were tackled by him. He developed his, his love of sports, actually, at school. So um, he attended the London School for the Sons of Missionaries, which was a very grand title. It's now called Eltham College, which is still there. Uh, he arrived there at, at age, I think, five. So his parents were missionaries in China. They came across to England on a furlough. It was like a break from missionary work. And at the end of this one-year-long furlough, they arrived at the school. The boys knew nothing about it, but he and his brother were dropped off at Eltham College, and from that point on, they were boarding there. They didn't see their mother for seven years or their father for 13 years, so which is an incredible, uh, you know, it's incredible when you look at it, but apparently it was very common practice for, for the children of missionaries. Sport was a huge part of their lives. The boys were just clear sportsmen. They both captained the cricket and the rugby teams, and they took it in turns to win sports day events. Um, Eric left Eltham uh, with a 100-yard sprint record of 10.2 seconds, which is very fast. <laughs> I believe the record still stands to this day. After that time, they went to Edinburgh University, both of them. Um, Eric went to study pure science, and it was at university that Eric made his mark as, as a rugby player. So it was initially for rugby that he was well-known. But it became very clear that he was a very strong athlete indeed, um, just some stats. Now, my wife advised me that I shouldn't put up any statistics because it might be not very interesting for people who weren't very interested in athletics. But since I am, I'm going to bore you anyway. Um, while he was at university, he, in, in two consecutive championships, he ran the 100-yard sprint in 10.2 seconds, the 220 yards, 21.8, the 440 yards in 52.6. Those were really fast times. It's quite hard to compare because it's yards and not metres, but... These are really fast times. And in qualifying for the 1924 Olympics, he ran 9.7 seconds in the 100 yards, a new British record that stood for 35 years. He really was uh, quite a champion. 
when it came to athletics. So it was deemed wise that he should step down from rugby and focus on athletics. He had a very unconventional running style. You can sort of see it here, a picture of him. He used to fling his head back and, and lurch his arms forward as though sort of boxing an invisible, invisible opponent. His coach thought there was no way he could win races with that style but was unable to train him out of it. While at university, Eric juggled not only his athletics training and his studies, but also quite a number of speaking engagements. A friend of Eric's, Eric's brother was a, a man called D.P. Thompson, who'd arranged a series of evangelistic meetings around the country um, with the aim of reaching the local people and using high school students and students to do that. So what they'd do, they'd move into a town or a village, they'd take over a church hall, they'd organise a series of meetings, and they'd, basically the students would go out during the day and try and draw local men and women in to these meetings in the, in the evening so that they could preach the gospel to them. Fantastic idea. And it was quite, quite successful in um, some of the rural areas, but not so much in the cities. It was felt a bit like the, the local men couldn't really relate to some of the students there just from slightly different social backgrounds. So DP had a, uh, a brainwave at one point. He decided to organise some rugby matches. Um, and what he'd do, he'd, he'd have a rugby match between the students and the local men, because the local men loved rugby. Um, they'd get together, have a, have a match, enjoy the time, and they built relationships during that time, and they were able then to invite them to meetings. Um, and it was actually really successful. But unfortunately, it was also... Uh, a little bit difficult to organise on a grand scale and it was found that the students got quite injured in these games so it wasn't really sustainable in the long term. So DP had a bit of a brainwave. Um, Eric's brother Robert was part of these evangelical meetings um, and DP knew who, who Robert's brother was. So he made a surprise visit to them at one point to their university digs in Edinburgh and his, basically his brainwave was, if I can get Eric Little along to talk at some of these meetings, the local men love rugby. They're going to flood in and see him, basically. So he, so he turned up at, at, at the digs of Eric and Robert, and it's just Robert in. Um, and he, he made this proposal to Robert and said, what do you think? Do you think, think Eric would consider coming and speaking at one of these meetings? And Robert was just really unsure because the family didn't know what he thought about his faith. They knew that he attended church every week. They knew that he read his Bible every day. But he, he spoke very little about his, his faith um, and his belief in Jesus. So Robert just replied to him, do you know what? I, I just don't know. You're going to have to ask him yourself. Anyway, Eric returned home. DP wasted no time in just offering this proposal that he, that he should come and speak at uh, one of his events. And apparently Eric just sighed deeply. He put his face in his hands for what seemed like an eternity and lifted his head and said, all right, I'll do it. Just tell me where you want me and when. Eric later commented that the decision to accept DP's invitation was the bravest decision he'd ever made. He was by nature very shy. He was reluctant to talk. Uh, in school, he very rarely raised his voice. Um, so for him, it was, it was simply out of his comfort zone. But for Eric, it was just a simple matter of obedience. So on the 6th of April 1923, Eric was introduced by his brother to a hall of some 80 men 
He didn't preach, but talked as though talking to a friend. He told the men how God was in control of his life and how he accepted whatever happened to him as God's best for his life at the time. He also spoke about, spoke about how much he knew God loved him and everyone sitting there in that room. He then thanked them for listening and sat down. As simple as that. It was a great success. Many um, local men had, had arrived at that meeting. But the next day, the press was full of this talk that Eric had given. They all knew him. Um, so the word was out. Eric was a Christian and he was talking about it. And he was literally flooded with invitations to speak at churches and groups across the nation from that point on. The following week, he spoke to 600 men at Rutherglen in Glasgow. And at that point, he just realised he'd been given the gift of fame. And he could use it to share the good news about Jesus. And he was going to do it. Despite his shyness, he endeavoured to accept every invitation he had to speak. So it, it was... This was the backdrop, really, to, to Eric training for the Olympics. He arrived there in 1924 in Paris. And on the day of the 100-meter heats, the heats he was supposed to compete in, he was rather fittingly preaching at the local church. So he missed it. But when he came out, he found out that Harold Abrahams had won. Harold Abrahams went on to win the 100-meter gold in a time of 10.6 seconds. And Eric was in the crowd cheering him on with everyone else. Both Eric and Harold ran, and they made it to the final of the 200. Um, Eric managed a bronze. Harold came last. But in the build-up to the 400, Eric really wasn't expected to fare very well. There was very strong competition. And in the heats, in fact, um, two world records were broken by two of the contenders. He managed to make it to the finals, but it wasn't considered that he was going to do very well in them. On the day of the finals, a friend of Eric's, team Masseur, passed a note to him, which said, in the old book it says, he that honours me, I will honour, wishing you the best success always. Eric drew the outside lane, which is the worst lane, because you were set in front of everyone else, you couldn't see the opposition behind you. As he always did, he went round and shook the hands of every competitor, and he set out, ready to start. When the gun went... He flew off. He got round to the, the first bend and realised that no one had overtaken him. He was expecting the world record holder to steam past him at this front at this point, but he didn't. So he threw his head back, gave it all he got, and he won it. He won the gold medal in the 400 metres, breaking the world record as a new world record of 47.6 seconds. Exhausted, he collapsed into the arms of his trainer but slipped away quietly after the event because he had another church service to prepare for that weekend. <laughs> the newspapers that week were trying to outdo each other in their praise of him, which Eric was somewhat amused by, given their initial dislike of him. The Scotsman that wrote, certainly there has not been a more popular win. The crowd went into a frenzy of enthusiasm. So he returned home, a hero who's paraded round Victoria Station when he, when he arrived back home by, on people's shoulders. They, they loved him. And then he returned to Edinburgh. He graduated a week later and was paraded around the streets of Edinburgh afterwards by, it, just by people he graduated with. They lifted him up on, um, on poles on a chair. I don't know if there might be a slide for that, actually. 
But uh, yeah, yes, this is, this is the students just uh, parading him round, their victorious hero. He, he then attended many receptions and parties held for him throughout the week. A few short weeks later, after his return from the Olympics, at another dinner in his honour, Eric, Eric concluded his speech with the following. Before I sit down, there is one more thing that I'd like to tell you all. It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I've had my mind set on a different prize. You see, each of us is in a different race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. It had always been my intention to be a missionary, and I've just received word that I've been accepted as a chemistry teacher at the Anglo-Chinese College in Tianjin, China. From now on, I'll be putting my energy into preparing to take up that position. I was blown away when I read that, because I, I knew how I felt about sport when I was a boy, and uh, here, here was a boy who was absolutely you know, consumed by sport. He loved it. The Olympics were the pinnacle of achievement in athletics. He'd gone and done that. But actually what he was saying was, do you know what? That's not all that. From the point I was a boy, my heart was set on something else. I want to, I want to receive my medal from God himself. So he stayed on one more year in Edinburgh. He studied theology um, in preparation for his work in the mission field. He also went on another extensive Christian speaking tour where literally thousands of people came to listen to him. Um, it wasn't uncommon for over a thousand people to be turned away from the churches he was preaching at. So at the point he left Scotland in July 1925, there was barely anyone in Scotland who didn't know where he was going and why he was going there. That's quite an achievement. So the decision to walk away from all that fame and the glory that he enjoyed in Scotland seems astonishing when you look at it. I think particularly when you compare it to today's stars and, you know, just the society today and the thirst for fame and fortune. But as in Eric's words, he was caught up in something different. He was caught up in a bigger picture, a bigger race. It was something so important that it eclipsed any temporary fame that he might experience on this earth. But the problem with sometimes when you're looking at um, just history makers, church history makers like this, is that their lives are, it's fantastic to hear the stories, it's fantastic to find out more about them, but sometimes they can just feel a little bit unattainable, a bit distant from us, because we just don't feel like we have this same level of gifting. So in the case of Eric, it might be just good to look at some just everyday practices that just kept him on an even keel, that kept him focused on that bigger vision. And the outworking of that later in life as a missionary in China. I've come to the terms with the fact now that I'm probably not going to become an international athlete. There, I've said That's it. Good. I've said it. I didn't get a call from Gareth Southgate just before they left asking me to help England bring football home. Turns out they probably didn't need me. But it's okay. Because the things I think make Eric Little great are not his sporting achievement, actually, but just a couple of simple things that help focus his life on God and the way he let God work through the abilities that he placed in him for his glory. 
There are three particular things I'd like to focus on. Three particular areas. One, God's presence. Eric spent regular time in God's presence. Two, obedience and sincerity. Three, love for God and the outworking of that love for people. So God's presence. We heard earlier that although Eric's family were not too sure what he thought about his faith, he did attend church and he did read his Bible regularly. Those clearly practices that, that were ongoing. But those elements in his devotional life became much stronger when he was at university. He came into a, a contact with a chap called Loudon Hamilton, who was a fellow athlete, who was part of a small gospel group, which, which later became known as the Oxford Group. And they really emphasised personal relationship with God. They emphasised having a time, a quiet time every day where you would, you'd pray, you'd read your Bible, and you'd listen to God. You'd expect God to speak to you through the Bible and through his spirit. And that became you know, such a help for Eric, and not only at his time in Edinburgh, but later in life as well. I read about uh, the story of him arriving at... Uh, basically, he was in a prison camp for the last two years of his life, 1943. Uh, it was a, basically, at that point, it was Japanese-occupied China, and they'd essentially shipped all the uh, foreign invaders, as they called them, into internment camps. Eric ended up in one of these places. It was 1,800 people in there in the space of about two rugby fields. When he, when he was at this internment camp, Wei Xin, he shared a bunk with six other men. And one of his bunkmates, Joe Cottrell, noticed that Eric would get up an hour earlier than everyone else in the bunk. He'd light a little peanut oil lamp and he'd get his Bible out and he'd read his Bible and he could hear him praying silently, like quietly in the background. And, Eric, and uh, Joe was really struck by this because I think he, he was a Christian um, and it just encouraged him to do the same. So um, he, he then began quiet times along with Eric and they were sort of silent buddies in, uh, in their times in the presence of God before everyone woke up on the camp. Joe was so inspired by Eric that he later called him the most Christ-like man he'd ever met, which is some big claim. Um, particularly in the way he applied the Bible's teachings to his life and the way he loved everyone that he met. He'd often encouraged men to love and pray for their Japanese captors, which was not popular at the time, but really encouraging for those who were there. And there was another chap, Stephen Metcalf, who was uh, also a friend of Eric's, who went on to become a missionary to Japan off the back of that encouragement from Eric. Eric wrote a manual on discipleship during his years in China. An excerpt reads as follows. Victory over all the circumstances in life comes not by might nor by power, but by a practical confidence in God and by allowing his spirit to dwell in our hearts and control our actions and emotions. Learn in the days of ease and comfort to think in terms of the prayer that follows so that when the days of hardship come, you'll be fully prepared and equipped to meet them. Father, I pray that no circumstance, however bitter or however long and drawn out, may cause me to break thy law, thy law of love to thee and to my neighbour, that I may not become resentful, have hurt feelings, hate, or become embittered by life's experiences, but that in and through all I may see thy guiding hand and have a heart full of gratitude for thy daily mercy, daily love, daily power, and daily presence. 
Help me in the day when I need it most to remember all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. I can do all things through him that strengthens me. My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's just a, snap, a snapshot of the sort of prayer that Eric would be praying in his quiet times in the morning. So he was equipped. He was equipped for the difficult days and the big decisions because of the, some of the decisions and the time he'd spent in God's presence during the easier days. I know from personal experience that a sort of regular, consistent, private time with God, call it what you will, quiet time, time in God's presence, is a challenge. I think it's a challenge for everyone. I think we often talk about Bible reading, we often talk about praying. And uh, it's interesting um, what Kenny said just about um, just listening to God and just an expectation of hearing from God as well. And I was ch- I've been challenged by this by Eric, that actually it's not only praying, it's not only uh, hearing God's word, it's also actually let's take some time to listen to what he's saying to us and apply that. And I think that's a real fundamental difference in his life and you can see the outworking of it. I've struggled uh, with consistency in Bible reading for quite a few years but over the last two years or so I've found something that's really helped me and that's audio Bible and um, I just thought I'd bring, uh, this is my audio Bible, David Suchet, uh, the actor, reading out the entire Bible it's been really helpful to me. It's just changed the way I listen to it. You know, I hear the word of God. I'm much more consistent. I, did, I re- listened to that in about eight months last year. Um, he's also, he also appears on, there's an HTB app, Bible in a Year, um, which is very good. And he also reads out the sections in that. So you literally download it every day and just listen to it. And that's what I'm doing this year. And, you know, I just encourage you, find creative ways. If you, if you struggle with finding time with God. Just find creative ways to do that. You know, try different things. It's consistency, I think, that is the key. That's what makes the difference. And it builds your faith. The word of God will build your faith. We're looking to build a culture of the presence of God at Gateway. And, of course, we're talking about corporate worship as part of that. But it starts in the quiet place. It starts in our rooms at home, spending time alone with God, listening to his word, praying, hearing from him. So I was encouraged by Eric to, uh, particularly to start listening more. Two, simplicity and sincerity. On reading about the life of Eric Little, I was struck by what seems to be a real sense of simplicity and sincerity in the way he lived. I found it incredibly refreshing. His headmaster at school described him as a boy entirely without vanity. I can't believe that's quite true, but, um, but it's no small feat for a lad with such ability, particularly on the sporting field. There's very little pretense about him. He often taught the children at school in China where the origins of the word sincere comes from. And it literally means without wax, sinner, serer. Sculptors of old would sign the bottom of their sculpture just to confirm that there was no wax on that sculpture which was covering up a crack or an imperfection in the sculpture. Eric told the boys that living the Christian life meant that they did not cover up their character weaknesses and mistakes, but instead led sincere lives. 
His daughter Patricia describes a time, she was a strong runner as well, not surprisingly. She describes a time where she was running in a race but not really taking it seriously. She's being silly. And uh, her, her father just drew her to, to the side after the race and said, look, you need to try your best at all times. It's not sincere. You need to honour other people by doing your best. And at Wei Xin, which was the, the prison camp that Eric was staying at, he would often get involved in running races and they'd invite him to, to join and he'd always try his best. He'd always absolutely trounce the opposition. <laughs> but you know, his point was, actually, they, they haven't come to, to run against any old person. God's given me a lot of ability. I'm going I'm 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 to run as fast as I possibly can. Essentially, he was just trying to allow God to work through the person that he'd made him and the gifts that he placed in him. I'm reading about him, I just found that just people had a genuine affection for him. And I think a lot of that comes from this lack of pretense. They said about his preaching that actually it was, he just wasn't that great a preacher. He just, he just talked to people as though he was talking to a friend in the room, which is great. And it's very sincere, very open. But there's no pretense about it, no great three-point sermon. He just told it like it was. It was said of him that he... he lived better than he preached. I would suggest that that is a huge compliment. Let's be those that, that live better than we talk about our faith. Let's do the latter really well as well, but let's walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Living without wax also shows others we're not perfect, but we're dependent on Jesus. It's by his grace that we've been saved. I heard about someone who attended this church who actually really struggled with the fact that everyone's lives seem so put together and perfect. And, uh, and they really struggled with it and eventually left. I don't know if that was the only reason they left, but, but they did. And I was gutted when I heard that. Because actually, you know, the truth is we are all works in progress. You know, you don't see the half of what what's going on in people's lives. But I think we just, you know, we all fall short. We all need God's forgiveness. We all need him as our saviour. And it just struck me that, you know, actually there are times where we just need to be more sincere. We need to be more real um, when we're struggling, when things are difficult. Um, because it actually, it might be helpful to others to see that actually our lives aren't perfect. Our lives aren't perfect, by the way. <laughs> Speaking for myself. And, you know, it struck me also social media. Um, is, a, is an issue there. I and mean, we have to be careful about the image we're presenting of our lives to, to others. I know some people you know, look at the pictures and what you're seeing is just edited highlights of people's lives. It's not the reality. It, you know, it can be fun. You know, nothing against social media or like Facebook. Just, but just be careful. Just be wary of how you, how you use it and how you view other people through it. Being sincere whilst following Jesus requires humility. We need to be not only the same people on Sunday as we are on a Monday, we need to model repentance and forgiveness. Eric Little wasn't a perfect man, but he was genuine. Sincere man, quick to repent when he felt he had wronged someone. And there was a simplicity to the way that he obeyed God, which really spoke to me too. There was a straightforwardness about him. His decision to speak at DP's rallies, um, his decision not to run in the 100 metres, were just really kind of just tips of the iceberg. They were just kind of a culmination of a myriad of of smaller acts of submission that he'd made throughout his life. 
there were many instances in China where you know, he, he was just obedient to God. He had to leave his wife and children for many months uh, because it was too dangerous for them. Um, but yeah, it's just, just refreshing to, to see the simplicity of that life worked out. Actually, he heard from God and he obeyed. Actually, there was, that, was, that led to some difficulties. It, it led to a lot of issues, but actually it was quite simple for him. It was straightforward. <laughs> did what God told him to. Again, on his manual on discipleship, he wrote, to obey God's will was like food to Jesus, refreshing his mind, body, and spirit. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. It's John 4.34. We can all have the same experience if we make God's will the dominant purpose in our lives. Take obedience with you into your time of prayer and meditation, for you will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. Again, that's just a reference to his, his time spent in the presence of God and the way he brought that obedience, listening to God's word, putting it into practice. seems to me I could be quite a lot more useful to God and the kingdom of God if I were to focus more attention on listening to him, um, on living a life of simple obedience and seeking to be sincere in all my contacts with people. I need the Holy Spirit to do those things, as we all do. Three, love for people. So reading about Eric's life in China with his wife and children was what really drew me to him as an individual. With all the fame of his life in Scotland left behind. What was left was an ordinary ordinary man seeking to do his very best for God and loving people in the process. Once in China, he worked at the school in Tianjin for 12 years. He taught science and the sports program. The idea of the school was to influence young leaders in China with a Christian faith. It was felt that that was a really good way of evangelising a nation. You spoke to, to the basically the children of some very significant characters in the government of China. He was also able to live with his family again, which was a huge blessing, particularly to his mother. And during his first furlough, back in Scotland, he was ordained into the Scottish Congregational Church, which would allow him to do sort of more traditional missionary work, baptising people, running a church and that kind of thing. He also met his soon-to-be wife, Flo, prior to leaving for his furlough. She was 10 years his junior, and they married in 1934 on his return. They went on to have three daughters, Patricia, Heather, and Maureen. Sadly, he was never to meet Maureen. There was much unrest in the country at the time. There was a struggle for power, particularly between nationalist communists and Japanese who were invading. The worst hit areas were in the countryside, um, and Eric was... (laughs) asked to move from Tianjin out to Xiaochang, which was an area in the countryside, so that he could serve in a, a mission base there. And basically, there were 10,000 villages around this mission base, and he was to go and be an evangelist to, to these uh, villages. No small feat. It was no place for children. There was a lot of fighting. Um, just the place was at war. So he had to make the heartbreaking decision to leave Flo and the girls he left in 1937. They stayed in Tianjin. Xiaochang was very dangerous. Uh, communists hated Christianity. There was a strong possibility of being shot for evangelising. Eric would often go and fetch wounded people from the villages and bring them back to... There was a hospital in the missionary compound. 
Um, on one occasion, he, he picked up two guys at the same time. There was a trolley that was only suitable for one patient. He managed to get two people on it. One was a, a communist. Uh, one was a villager who'd been slashed in the neck by Japanese soldiers. One of them died, sadly. The other recovered and was so incredibly grateful to Eric for the love that he'd shown and the risk that he'd taken going to get him. He was an artist and he insisted on, throughout his recovery, insisted on painting him pictures and giving them to him as gifts, as some sort of recompense for the sacrifice that he'd made. So in 1940, the area around Xiaochang became so dangerous that the missionaries had to leave as well. So Eric returned to Tianjin. It was also at that point felt that it was no longer safe for Flo and the girls to even stay in China. So they, they left. That was a huge decision. Eric stayed. He thought it probably wouldn't be for too much longer. But he stayed in Tianjin and saw the, the girls off. And actually in 1943, as part of the unrest, Eric was sent to an internment camp that I mentioned before, Wei Xin. On entering that camp, Eric prayed, Lord, how can I shine your light in this place? He soon found that there was a way to do that. All the adults in the camp were given a job to do. Eric took two jobs. He decided he wanted to be a teacher, so he taught science. He also wanted to run the sports program, so he did that. He found that he had a special heart, particularly for teenagers in that camp. I think part of that came out of his his teaching work, but also the fact that uh, you know, his, his girls were overseas and he couldn't father them. And he actually became a father figure to about 90 children who had been sent to this camp from the inland mission in China. These were children whose parents had either died or their parents were at other internment camps around China. He became a real father figure to them, watched over them, made sure they always had someone to turn to, I literally, I read and, and I watched interview after interview, there's quite a few online, uh, interviews with these children who Eric had been on the camp with and they just loved him. They had story after story about the ways in which he'd, he'd helped them. His bunkmates got a bit fed up because uh, basically he had, a, he had a steady stream of teenagers coming into his bunk asking for advice. Uh, coming ask, asking for help for, for various things. So they put this sign up outside his bunk which said, Uncle Eric is, it said, in or out. And they like, could cross off one or the other so at least they could get some peace and quiet when, when he was out. But he spent the time teaching them about the Lord. He supervised hockey games. He spent the spare time repairing their sporting equipment. He even sought God and decided it would be appropriate to, to run some hockey games on a Sunday for them because he just recognised that they needed to be engaged in activity um, and this was a good way to do it. So it was you know, interesting move from the big decision he'd made not to run on a Sunday. The hospital at the compound was really overcrowded and Eric heard of a case of two people who'd um, essentially needed to be um, quarantine from the rest of the hospital because they contracted typhoid. Um, he had that one of the one of these patients was a young girl, aged twelve years, and the other was a nun. And just recognised the fact that actually that is an incredibly frightening experience. But more frightening, they to quarantine quarantine them. They put them into a morgue alongside the hospital. 
So these patients were in a morgue. Um, so I just made the decision, actually, I'm, I'm just going to go and visit her every day, just make sure she's all right, try to cheer her up with stories about what had gone on at school during the day. Um, sadly, the nun died, so uh, the young girl was then left on her own in, in the morgue. Eric continued to visit, despite the fact that there was a huge danger of him contracting typhoid himself, even by visiting her. She eventually recovered and was just hugely grateful to him for that, again, just act of sacrifice. There are countless other stories. I could go into loads. But, you know, things like he gave away his, his running spikes, his treasured running spikes to a young boy whose who's shoes had just run out. They, they're worn out. So he took care to bind up and wrap up these running spikes very carefully and with character, characteristic modesty handed them over saying, I wonder if these would do you for a couple of weeks. When he wasn't encouraging children, he was encouraging others, adults, encouraging them to love their captors, to pray for them. He'd quite often be fetching and carrying for some of the widows on the camp, carrying buckets of coal and water for them. The stories that come out from that time were a great comfort, particularly to Eric's older daughter, Patricia, who'd grown up you know, just questioning God about why her dad was just not around any of the time, um, and really struggled with that. I was a bit angry with God about it. But when she heard the just myriad of stories of the way that Eric had just loved these children at that camp, it, she just kind of it twigged that's what was happening, that was what God was doing. And fortunately, her mother um, was amazing and, and did a fantastic job of parenting in his absence. Eric's love for God overflowed in his love for others. He showed that you can build God's kingdom by very simple acts of service. Carrying a bucket of coal for someone, noticing when someone might be having a tough time. I think at this church at Gateway, we're really good at this stuff. Actually, we're good at helping other people. But, you know, be encouraged. I'm encouraged. Let's, let's do even better. Jesus said, by this, people will know that you're my followers, that you would love one another. There's such a power in this. Deb reminded me of a story. When we moved down to uh, Ashford, we didn't know anyone. We left our old church and our friends behind us, turned up in this new town. When we arrived with all our, our gear and the removal van, at the door was a basket of food, milk, bread, various other bits and pieces. It's such a blessing to us at that time. A very small thing, but a huge blessing Turned out it was the delightful Sarah Evans that had, uh, that had left that for us. But interestingly, Deb has told this story to school mums particularly, and their response is just amazement, actually, that people would do that in this day and age. And, you know, we might think of it as an everyday thing in church, but it's not everyday. It's so countercultural, and it's so at the very heart of God's love for us that we love other people and demonstrate that so let's listen to god let's ask him to put people on our minds people who need help or encouragement it's powerful stuff be building his kingdom as we do this eric little's reminded me of this he's also reminded me of the, the powerhouse behind my christian walk the powerhouse is spending time in god's presence listening 
as well as talking. He's reminded me that I need to put into practice what I've heard and to live my faith better than I talk it. All very simple things that add up to a whole lot. I'm conscious that I've painted a very positive picture of him. He wasn't perfect. He was just following one who is. But I think it's just helpful to learn from those who are a bit further down the track than us. People who've been there, done that. Who've served God in amazing ways. and Just find ways that we can emulate their lives. I'd love to have known him just for the way he lived his life for Jesus. I'd also like to have seen him run. So I'll finish there, but I just, I'd like to pray, really, for us all. Just a simple prayer as we go out. Lord God, Lord God, I, I want to thank you for this series we've been doing on the lives of church history makers. I thank you for the encouragement it brings. I thank you that the truth of this is that actually these were just ordinary men and women who'd chosen to give over their lives and their abilities to you. They were ordinary people serving an extraordinary God. Lord God, and I thank you that the same is true for us, Lord God, that we can go out of this place and into this week knowing that we're ordinary, but you breathe your life into us. Lord God, would you fan into flame that that you've placed within us? Teach us, Lord, to spend time in your presence. Teach us to live a life of obedience to you. Help us to be sincere and open with others. And help us to love others as you've loved us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.